I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. On this day in 1944, the Battle of Leyte Gulf began. It was the largest naval encounter in history and the most decisive naval battle of the Pacific War. By its end, the Japanese Navy had been eliminated as an effective fighting force and had been forced to resort to suicide attacks. The battle was a huge, sprawling affair. It was not one battle, but four separate naval battles, each with its own distinctive characteristics. And so to understand it requires something of a bird's eye view. To find out more and to achieve that bird's eye view, I spoke to the excellent Mark Still, a retired commander in the United States Navy and now a naval historian of some renown. He has recently taken on the challenge of unpacking this jigsaw of a battle and meticulously putting each piece in its place. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the patient, detailed, historical naval jigsaw smith. It's Mark. Mark, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Hi, Sam. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, right. The world's largest sea battle. That's some claim about later golf. Can you give us some facts and figures and explain why that is the case? Well, that's far and away, and without doubt, the world's largest sea battle. There were about 235 major combatants on the U.S. side, and there were 69 combatants on the Japanese side. And it wasn't really one battle. Uh, as the name suggests, it was a series of actions fought over three days, and there were four major actions in the battle and a bunch of other smaller actions as well. So it, it was a very complicated and complex and large naval battle. Mm. Did that make it difficult to write about? Uh, no, no. Well, yes, because space is always a concern, especially with your with your editor and your publisher. Uh but the hard part about it was trying to uh, attack the myths of the battle. And every battle has myths that are associated with it. But Leyte Gulf abounds in mythology. Hmm. I wonder why that's the case. What do you think? I think, as always, uh, the first people who write about the battle, who, who really may not have all the facts right after the event, they write it, and that becomes uh, 
that becomes the accepted knowledge and wisdom of the battle. So uh, that was the case, I think, here. Samuel Elliott Morrison, the dean of U.S. Navy World War II historians, wrote about the battle and uh, had a certain take on it, and that's the prevailing take today. I remember when I, I wrote my PhD on 18th century naval battles, and I remember um, very early on my supervisor saying, gosh, you've got to be careful about what people are saying about, you know, all the accounts of the battle, and the first thing you've got to do is make sure that they were there. Uh, but then it became very clear to me that just because they were there, it didn't necessarily mean they had any idea what was going on. Yeah, I would, I would say that's probably dangerous. If they were there, they don't have the big picture, probably. Yeah, correct, and especially in... Um, there's a major problem with smoke, but also the scale of the battle in the 18th century. I mean, even then, the battles were huge. But later golf, it was it was incredible. Were there? I mean, you said there were lots of different actions happening. Were were they all happening at the same time, or was there a, uh, a was it a kind of a clear chronological narrative? Yeah, there was a, a clear chronological narrative. They did unfold these four big actions. They unfolded sequentially. Oh, okay. Uh, so from that standpoint, uh, it's easier to follow the battle. In that yeah. regard, well, well, paint the picture for us um, leading up to the battle. What was what was going on? What was the strategic situation? Well, it's October 1944, and the Americans are uh, ready to advance into the Western Pacific. Uh, the Battle of Philippine Sea just concluded in June, and that's when the Japanese, for the first time since October 1942, committed their carrier force. Uh, the world's largest carrier battle was in June 1944 off the Marianas. It went disastrously for the Japanese. Mm. Uh, so they're not really ready for this next American advance. And the Americans target the Philippines with the goal of occupying the Philippines to cut off the sea lanes between Japan and the resource areas in Southeast Asia. So for the Japanese, it's a existential moment. They have to defend these sea lanes or else they can't continue the war. So that's what sets up this big naval battle. Mm. How can we compare the navies at the time? There is no real comparison. One is on the ascendancy and one is at its uh, nadir. So uh, yeah. the Japanese, who once were the most powerful navy in the Pacific, uh, they had been reduced to near impotence by this point in the war. And the Americans are, uh, obviously, they, they have this immense production capacity. It's reached the Pacific. Not only that, but the uh, the people that use these new ships are well trained. They have a good doctrine, and they've incorporated technology. So, uh, it's it's on paper at least. It's a very unfair fight. Hmm. Is there a sense at all that the Japanese knew the writing was on the wall, or are they just ploughing ahead, doing the next the you know the next task that they've been set, which is to defend these sea lanes? Is there any sense of well, hang on a minute, let's just see what what is actually achievable? Uh, good question. I mean, you, you, it's hard to tell what they really thought, but, uh, you know, those more sober analysts in the Imperial Navy knew that they didn't have a chance. But the, the notion that they could win, wage and win a decisive battle was deep in the Japanese Navy's DNA. So for a number of points in the war, they set up these decisive battles and they, they thought that they could do it again. So this Leyte Gulf battle, the Japanese response to the American invasion, of Leyte was another decisive battle uh, in which they thought they could change the course of the war. Hmm. It's interesting that you've got submarines, you've got surface ships, and then you've got aircraft as well. Um, how do the 
I, actually, I'm struggling to think off the top of my head of another battle which has so much of each different aspects of sea power in it. Um, let's just start with the subs. How did the, how did the submarines fit into all of this? Uh, the Japanese, uh, the submarines were really a, a secondary player in this major fleet action. Yeah. Uh, for the Japanese especially, they were down to something like 13 submarines at this point in the war, and they played essentially no part in it in, it, in the battle. Uh, the American mm -hmm. subs were at this point. As people probably know, they were very uh, proficient, uh, not only against convoys, but also against Japanese fleet units. So they did play uh, an important part in the battle. But the Leyte Gulf is, like you were saying, it's, uh, it's just incomparable on in many levels because it is. It, it featured a lot of things that haven't happened before or since. It, it had the largest air-sea battle ever in, in naval history. Uh, it was the only time when a surface force attacked a a carrier force and was faced with a surface and an air threat at the same time. It was mm -hmm. the last battleship engagement in naval history. It was the last time that there was a carrier battle in naval history, and it was the first time that they that the Japanese had organized use of the kamikazes. Yeah, tell us about the people who were in charge. Who was in charge of the American fleet? Well, there are actually two American fleets in the battle. There's the third fleet that everybody's probably familiar with. That was the the carrier fleet under Admiral William Halsey. And everybody knows the aggressive William Halsey and the important uh, part that he played in the battle. Uh, obviously, he was, a, uh, from his earlier war experience, he was, a, he was known to be a very aggressive commander. And that's exactly what he did during this battle as well. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. There was another American fleet, the Seventh Fleet, which was known as MacArthur's Navy, and that's the fleet that was responsible for landing and defending uh, the, you know, the troops on the beachhead. So that was under a, a, an admiral named Thomas Kincaid. Uh, he gets, for some reason, history absolves him of responsibility for what happened during the battle. So Halsey gets a lot of the blame, and Kincaid gets almost no blame, even though it was arguably his responsibility that the Japanese got through the San Bernardino Strait and came into the Philippine Sea and attacked uh, the American escort carrier fleet off of Samar Island. Mm. And who was in charge of the Japanese? The Japanese uh, admirals in charge, there were really two important uh, gentlemen we need to talk about. One was Admiral Tayoda, who was in charge of the combined fleet. He's the guy that came up with the plan for the Japanese... Uh, attack at Leyte. I, I think the, the Japanese plan is one of the most fascinating parts of the entire battle, and that was uh, devised by Admiral Toyota, who really had no good options at this point, but he came up with uh, the worst plan possible. And in this plan, there were several different forces involved, and the biggest one, the most important one, was called the First Diversionary Attack Force, and this was under a, an admiral named Kurita. And he was the guy that had to make this whole plan work. He had to be very aggressive and ruthless to, to give it a plan of actually uh, uh, coming off as intended. And he was not the right man for the job. He was a very uh, conservative, a very cautious admiral. Mm. Okay, well, um, take us through it chronologically, if you can. Where's the best place to start for it all to make sense? Well, we can start on or about 20 October when the Americans land on Leyte, the island of Leyte in the central Philippines, and that prompts the Japanese to put their plan in motion. It's the, 
It's the Shogo plan or victory operation. So Admiral Toyota, who uh, came up with the plan, uh, executes it or sets it in motion on about 20 October. And the goal being of the plan, the, the, the primary goal of the plan was to stop the American invasion, which happens, like I said, at 20 October at Leyte. But through a number of, uh, of factors, many of which were just poor staff planning on the part of the Japanese, the earliest that Kurita's fleet can get there to Leyte is 25 October. So right away, there's a huge disconnect. This plan cannot achieve its stated goal. So Kurita sets off from a, an anchorage located near Singapore, and he heads off towards Leyte. Uh, 23 October, he runs into a submarine ambush. So here's when submarines start to play a role in the battle. Uh, the Japanese fail to uh, detect these submarines, even though they were on the surface for hours ahead of time before the ambush on the morning of the 23rd. They ambush Kurita's force. They sink two heavy cruisers and send a third back. And so then Kurita proceeds toward, on towards Leyte, according to his mission. And the next day, he's attacked in the Subian Sea by American naval air power. And, th and that's the first of these four major engagements, the Battle of Subian Sea. Hmm. And uh, what are the, the carriers doing at this stage? Uh, carriers are... Of course, that's that's the main American striking force. There are at this point there are sixteen carriers, but Halsey does not use his force to to best advantage. And uh, mm -hmm. two of two of his carrier task forces are are sent away on twenty two October because Halsey does not have good intelligence about Japanese intentions. So he does not foresee a Japanese reaction. So he sends away. Half his fleet. Actually, one of these task forces is recalled in time. One is not. So on the 24th, when the Battle of Subian Sea starts, uh, he's got three task forces arrayed to the uh, east of the Philippines uh, in ready to attack Krita's force. And this, this happens starting about 10 o'clock in the morning on the 24th. Uh, and throughout the day, there are about 250 sorties thrown against Kurita's force. And this sounds like a lot, but uh, just a few days earlier, on October 12th, when, I, when Halsey had his entire force together and he attacked Formosa to reduce Japanese air power, he could mount 1,400 sorties on one day, that being October the 12th. And then on wow. October the 24th, because he's mishandled his force, he can only conduct 250 sorties against the biggest Japanese force of the entire war. So the attack uh, goes well. The Japanese don't have any air support. They have no air cover. Uh, but the Americans focus on one ship, essentially one ship and, and Krita's big force, and that was the super battleship Musashi. Yeah. So throughout the day, there were five major raids on this during this, uh, this series of attacks. Uh, they continue to focus on Musashi. Um, she acts as a torpedo sponge, and uh, because she takes most of the American attentions, most of Krita's force is unaffected. Musashi is sunk, and one other cruiser is forced to return to Singapore. But other than that, Krita's force is really uh, not adversely affected, and he can continue on towards Leyte Gulf. 
So the Battle of Subian Sea actually is a tactical victory for the Japanese, which seems counterintuitive because they lose this huge battleship, but their, their forces still come at effective and able to, to, to continue on mission. Yeah. Do the, do the, the Americans on Leyte know that they're coming? They know that they're coming, uh, but there's another force coming. Uh, there's all these forces uh, in the Japanese plan. The Japanese love these complex plans. So there's the main force under Kurita. They know it's coming. There's another smaller force coming through the Sulu Sea headed towards the Surigao Strait, which is south of Leyte. And this force was also detected on the 24th. It was attacked once. They know it's coming. And that force will get there first. Uh-huh. So the Seventh Fleet sets up to take to defend Suriga Strait. In the meantime, there's another Japanese force uh, <laughs> coming from the north, and and that is the the famous uh, decoy force uh, under Admiral Ozawa, and that is intended to be a force that draws Halsey away from Leyte, so yeah. Kurita can sneak in through the back door and attack the beachhead. However, uh, the Japanese plan doesn't come off as intended because their decoy force isn't detected until late on the 24th. But eventually, the Americans detect all three of these forces. Uh, actually, th- there's another f- smaller fourth as w- sm- fourth force as well. But eventually, Americans realize that this is a major Japanese effort with at least three major forces. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about what happened in the Surigao Strait because it's got this uh, fantastic battleship to battleship action. The last, the last great one in history. Surigao Strait was the last battleship action in history, uh, but it wasn't much of a battleship action. It was mainly uh, a night torpedo action. The Japanese come up the strait. They have a small force of seven ships to include two battleships. Uh, and the Americans launch a series of torpedo attacks with destroyers against the approaching Japanese. These are very effective. In fact, one American destroyer with a single torpedo salvo uh, damages and eventually sinks three Japanese destroyers. Uh, Both of the Japanese battleships are also hit by torpedoes. 
and when it comes to the gunnery phase of the action, there's only one Japanese battleship left. And when they get to the head of the strait, the northern part of the strait, it's facing f six American battleships. So not much of a battleship action, but uh, five of the six U.S. battleships do get to fire in this engagement. Uh, and that and, and more torpedo damage sinks the second of the two Japanese battleships. And, and the action is essentially a, a maritime execution. Right. But the Japanese keep on coming, yeah? That's the, that's the problem. So you've had this, this maritime execution, but uh, who's stopping everything else, everyone else coming? Right, that, that, was a, that was also a diversionary force. That force broke off from Kurita's main fleet, coming from the south, uh, which it, it did achieve its mission, uh, if, if you can call that successful. It was virtually annihilated, but it did draw off the Americans to defend Suraga Strait, while in the north, from the north, here comes Carita's main force. Uh, it gets through San Bernardino Strait early in the morning of 25th October and then heads south. And that's when it, it runs into the American escort carrier force known as Taffy 3. Are they able to fly the amount of sorties that they need to? Are they starting off uh, with a strong foot? Well, they were caught by surprise. Uh, they were very much caught by surprise, as were the Japanese. So it is mutual surprise off of Samar. Uh, and this is the most important of the four actions in the, in the Battle of Bete Gulf, the action off the battle off Samar, when Kurita's huge fleet, which still includes four battleships, six heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and a bunch of destroyers, runs across this escort carrier force of only six escort carriers and a bunch of small escorts. Uh, and history has this, and, and mythology has this down as a David and Goliath event, with Japanese battleships uh, contending against American destroyers. And that's not the case because like you said, the, the Americans were able to fly a number of sorties during the day. Uh, so it really wasn't a battle between destroyers and battleships. It was a battle between American aircraft and Japanese surface ships. And as we've seen since day one of the war, uh, air, air power will dominate surface ships, all things being equal. and. During the first few hours of this action off Samar, the Americans are able to mount 200 aircraft sorties. So it's the only time in naval history where a surface force has to contend with air power while trying to attack a carrier force. Let's talk a little about the um, American air power. What planes did they have? The escort carriers were equipped with two types of aircraft. They had the older Wildcat fighters. The, the fleet carriers had the, had the better Hellcat fighters, but the Wildcats were good enough for the escort carriers. And they also had the Avenger torpedo bombers, and these were very versatile aircraft that could carry torpedoes, bombs, and a number of, of other ordnance. And uh, to be fair, a lot of these aircraft uh, on the morning of 25 October, because the Americans were surprised, they were not equipped with torpedoes, but they were equipped with bombs, even depth charges. But still, 200 aircraft uh, attacking a single force over the span of about two and a half hours, that's a significant uh, effort. And, and that was a, a big part of why the battle turned out the way it did. So just take us through what happened then. So both sides are caught by surprise. Uh, Karita thinks that he is caught part of Admiral Halsey's third fleet. He thinks he has caught the main American fleet. 
he does not realize and never does realize throughout the entire battle that he has run across a force of escort carriers, which is important because escort carriers are slow and they're unarmored and they're not well armed. And it had he known that these were slow escort carriers, he could have fought a different kind of battle. But he thought these were fleet carriers and that therefore they were fast. So if they're fast, he has to conduct what is called a general attack. So he he cuts his forces loose to uh, conduct an immediate attack. It's not well coordinated, but he has to because uh, if these are fleet carriers, they'll simply steam away and the battle will be over before it begins. So he conducts this general attack. It's not well coordinated. And the Japanese start a long-range gunnery action with their battleships while the mm. cruisers try to close in uh, you know, for, to, to, a, to a more effective range. But mm. it's a gunnery action for the most part. And again, there's more mythology involved with that because people think, well, why can't the Japanese simply annihilate these slow, unarmored escort carriers? They have four battleships, after all. Why wasn't this a mop-up? Well, because it's hard to hit ships from long range, even under ideal conditions. And that had been thrown throughout the war. And here we have an occasion where there are anything but ideal conditions. The, the Americans lay a lot of smoke because they want to try to camouflage and hide their escort carriers. Uh, there's a lot of bad weather in the area. The Americans hide within squalls. And the Japanese are under incessant air attack, and they're under... A torpedo attack by the escorts. So it's very difficult for them to generate accurate fire control solutions while under air attack, while having to maneuver, and while having to deal with the escort attack. So the Japanese, uh, actually, they should be given more credit than they have been for what they did do during the battle. They were able to sink four American ships, uh, to include one of the escort carriers, and they were able to hit four of the six escort carriers with gunnery. So they did have some success, but it was not uh, a decisive battle because most of the American force does survive. Mm. So wh- where, how does it all end? So the, the, uh, at, at the same time when this is occurring, the Halsey has taken his third fleet north. Third fleet is this uh, immense force of three carrier task groups at the time and six powerful modern battleships. He leaves San Bernardino Strait unguarded. He goes north, and he begins to attack the Japanese decoy force, which is still a powerful force on paper, at least. It has four carriers and two battleships. At the same time, the the Battle of Samar is developing. Uh, Seventh Fleet is sending a, a bunch of panicky messages to Halsey. We're under attack by heavy Japanese units. Come help us. Uh, Halsey does not want to do that because he sees a chance to utterly annihilate this Japanese force in front of him. Uh, So he resists this notion until Admiral Nimitz weighs in from from Guam. Uh, He's the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. He asks, where are are your battleships? Uh, And that that finally snaps Halsey into realizing he needs to send something south, help out the escort carriers. So at the end of the day, Halsey's not able to employ his whole force against either the decoy force, the Japanese carrier force, or against Kurita's force, which after pummeling the escort carriers uh, at uh, from about 7 o'clock until about 0915, 
at which time Kurita calls that battle off because his mission is still to get into Leyte Gulf. So he uh, breaks off the action about 9.15, and he very tentatively begins to head south. Uh, for various reasons, he decides not to, even though that's his mission, to get into the Gulf and create havoc there. He, he heads north. Halsey does not come south in time to cut off Carita, and Carita is able to get through San Bernardino Strait successfully uh, late on the 25th. And that leaves the Americans happy on late and able to control what's going on in the Philippines and beyond. It does, but it also it, it's, it, it creates a lot of controversy because here's Halsey's uh, impressive fleet, the most powerful in the world by far, and he's not able to to really uh, deal a crippling blow to either the, the carrier force or to Krita's force. Uh, so Halsey's you know, run to the north has been criticized ever since by uh, analysts of the battle. It, it also creates an, another controversy, which is perhaps the, the most uh, myth-laden one of all regarding the battle, is that uh, Krita had this chance after he breaks off action with the escort carriers he has a chance to break into Leyte Gulf and create havoc there. And here's the chance to, quote unquote, change the course of the war. because You, you can get in there and sink all this American amphibious shipping. Uh, but in fact, though, that is pure mythology because at the end of the battle, Carita's force is down to only four battleships, four cruisers of various types and eight destroyers. In the meantime, 7th Fleet, which is... Uh, which is done at the Saragoth Strait battle and has moved north and is ready to defend the approaches, the eastern approaches to Leyte, has an overwhelming force of six battleships, nine cruisers of various types, and 39 destroyers. So the mythology that Carito, all he had to do was waltz into Leyte Gulf and then shoot up everything in sight and change the course of the battle, that is utter nonsense because he faced a, a force larger than his own and also the Americans had hundreds of aircraft in, in, this, uh, in this battle that, that never was. So Krita would never have gotten into Leyte Gulf. And even if he was able to, there's nothing left there to shoot up. There were simply empty transports. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating story. Uh, what are you working on at the minute, Mark? Well, we just finished, uh, I just finished a battle on Midway. So we're going to look at Midway. Uh, there's not as much mythology with Midway, but still, it's a compelling battle. Great. Well, I look forward to having you back. We'll talk about Midway in the future. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks, Sam. Thank you all so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're interested in naval history, then do please make sure you check out all of the many episodes in our back catalogue in which we look at iconic naval battles. Please remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. In particular, please check out the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History and Education Centre's latest project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature, filming the world's best 
best ship models with the very latest camera equipment. There are a number of naval ships in that, and it's uh, truly, truly astonishing. Please also make sure you check out the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk, where you can join up. It's a brilliant way, not only of learning about the maritime past from the very best in the business, but also of meeting people. And if you sign up, you even get to come to the annual dinner on board HMS Victory or HMS Warrior. Wonderful stuff.